Well, good evening. Glad you are here and Merry Christmas to you. Um, I want to start out tonight just thinking a little bit about what silence can mean, what silence can mean to us. Sometimes um, it can mean that we're angry. How many of you have ever experienced that? When you get mad, uh, you just get quiet. Anybody? It's kind of just the whole thing. You just kind of go quiet when you get mad. And, uh, you can be in the same room, same vehicle, uh, same bed with somebody, and you're just mad, so you're, you're silent. Um, the other day, my, uh, my youngest son and I were going through a drive-through. We were over actually at Uncle Shug's over at, uh, uh, on 301 in the bypass. Y'all know what I'm talking about over there by the Parkers? Um, and so we're, we're there it's Sunday. We go through the drive-through. We pull up to the drive-through window or the, where you order, and I placed our order. I said, I'd like one bacon cheeseburger, ketchup, mustard only, fries, and a Coke to drink. I'd like another cheeseburger, no tomatoes, fries, Diet Coke. That would be me. Um, and the boys had come on and said, you know, welcome to Uncle Shug's. How can I help you? So I, I went ahead and ordered. I sat there for three or four minutes. Silence. Nothing. How many of you ever get a little frustrated in drive through sometimes? Silence. I looked at Reed. I said, this is getting aggravating. I said, I'll just pull up to the window. We'll straighten this out. I pull up to the window. There's a glare on the window, but I swear I, I could see people in there moving around. I'm like, they got to know we're here, right? Silence. Three more, four more minutes go by. Finally, I look up on the door. It said closed on Sundays. <laughs> Sometimes silence means nobody's there, right? Felt so stupid. That's when you kind of look around like, who saw that? So sometimes it might be you're angry. Sometimes it might be that, you know, nobody's there. And that's kind of a funny story. But sometimes silence is really painful because somebody who used to be there is no longer there. Sometimes it can mean no one cares. So you're talking, but nobody's listening. And you feel like no Nobody really cares. Sometimes it can be because you're hiding. Think about a, a small child. They'll go and hide. And I know some of my children would do this. They'd go hide and you'd be like, hey, where are you? And they'd be like, over here. And you're like, that's not good when you're playing hide and seek. So sometimes when we're hiding, we get really quiet. We get silent. Adam in the garden when he and Eve had sinned and God was coming through the garden looking. He was quiet until God said, Adam, where are you? Sometimes we get quiet because we have selective hearing. Anybody else got selective hearing? Sometimes we'll be at home and Susan will say, Brandon. I don't say anything. Brandon. Nothing. My son will look at me. He's like, dad, mom's calling. I'm like, I know, son. She wants me to do something. Just keep pretending we don't hear. Selective hearing. Sometimes we get quiet because we don't want to hear, right? Sometimes we get quiet because we're in awe. There's silence because we're in awe at what we see. Sometimes we might get quiet if we're about to ambush somebody. We're going to jump out 
and scare them. Sometimes we're quiet just because we're observing what's going on around us and we're just trying to take it all in. And so silence can mean a lot of different things. And when you think about this song we just heard, Silent Night, it's one of those those cherished Christian songs. It's one of the most sung songs, most loved songs um, that, that we have ever heard, that we have ever sang. But if you're honest, like how many of you hate silence, especially in a conversation? You just hate silence. It's that awkward silence, right? How many of you would say you hate silence just in general? You just don't like it when it's quiet. You just don't like it when, when there's nothing going on around you. Um, for many of us, that's the way it is. It's why you know, we enjoy being occupied all the time. It's why we enjoy Netflix shows and we'll watch episode after episode of, of things we've already seen because it's just better than being left alone with our thoughts. It's why many times we'll leave the TV on even until we fall asleep or after we fall asleep. It's why we like to keep our minds occupied with games on our phone like Candy Crush or mindless things that we can just go through and do because we don't want to be left alone with our thoughts in that silent time. We don't want to give our minds this time to wonder. We don't want to let those thoughts of what if creep in. We don't want to let those thoughts of what if begin to dampen our spirits. We don't want those thoughts of what yesterday could have been or what today might be or what tomorrow might hold to begin giving new meaning to that awkward silence. Here's what's crazy is that the Israelites didn't have a night of silence. The Israelites had 400 years of silence. We've been looking at the minor prophets the last 11 weeks. Tonight we finished it up with Malachi, the 12th of the minor prophets. And Malachi prophesied about 100 years after the Israelites had returned from exile, from Babylon. They come and they, they rebuild the temple. This is about a hundred years later. But after Malachi prophesied, it went silent. God didn't communicate through a prophet again for 400 years. From the time of Malachi to the birth of Jesus, 400 years. What was God doing, right? Have you ever wondered that? Like, if you're honest, have you ever wondered, what was God doing? What is God doing? Sometimes we would wonder like, where is God? And it seems like the Israelites were already wondering that even before the 400 years of silence began. I want you to go to the book of Malachi today or tonight. And I want you to look at kind of the questions that the Israelites were asking and the things that God was saying to them and exposing about them. Because as we look at this, I want you to recognize something, that all of the issues that they were dealing with and that they were wondering about, all of these things were caused because they were looking at things through their own understanding and not through the lens of faith. So if you look at Malachi chapter one, verse one through three, 
Remember, this is Malachi prophesying to a people about 100 years after the temple had been built. They had returned. The, 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 they, they were uh, let go by the king of Persia. It was a miracle to see how God had worked to bring them back. And Malachi 1.1 says this, a prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, how have you loved us? God says, was not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. And I've turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. If you go way back in the Old Testament, in Israel's history, there's this place and time where a child named Esau and a child named Jacob are born. And God chooses Jacob to bring the Messiah through. And God here is saying, not only did I love you so much that I chose you, but I also loved you so much that I have defeated your enemies. He's saying, think back to what I have done for you in the past. This kind of makes me think about when a child will look at a parent and say, you don't love me. Anybody ever had that happen, right? You don't love me. To that, I want to reply, do you think I cleaned your poop? Your clothes work to feed you, work to put a roof over your head because I don't love you? Do you think I just decided this would be a lot of fun? No, it's because I do love you. And this is kind of what God is saying. He's saying, look at all that I have done for you. If you take a moment in your life right now and you reflect on all that God has done and blessed you with, there is no way that we can deny the fact that God loves us. They were questioning God's love though because it didn't look and feel like they thought it should. So they lost sight of how God had given them victory over their enemies, how he had been with them through their entire history. Look at Malachi 1, 6 through 8. It says, a son honors his father and a slave his master. If I am a father, where is the honor due to me? If I'm a master, where is the respect due to me? Says the Lord Almighty. It is you priests who show contempt for my name. But you ask, how have we shown contempt for your name? By offering defiled food on my altar. But you ask, how have we defiled you? By saying the Lord's table is contemptible. When you offer blind animals for sacrifice, is that not wrong? When you sacrifice lame or diseased animals, is that not wrong? Try offering them to your governor. Would he be pleased with you? Would he accept you, says the Lord Almighty? When we look at this, they're bringing these lame animals for sacrifice. They'll say, you're not giving me your best. It shows how far their hearts had drifted from God how unfaithful they were being. And see, the temple of their day looked and felt insignificant because it was so much smaller than the original temple that Solomon had built. And they looked at it, it seemed so small and insignificant that they lost sight of how big and glorious the God they were worshiping really is. To their understanding, it didn't make sense. It seems so insignificant. Surely giving God our best doesn't matter. When you look at Malachi chapter two, verses 10 and 11, 
The prophet says this, we, do we not all have one father? Did not one God create us? Why do we profane the covenant of our ancestors by being unfaithful to one another? Judah has been unfaithful. A detestable thing has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Judah has desecrated the sanctuary the Lord loves by marrying women who worship a foreign God. And this time, and what God is saying to them is that they, they looked around and it looked and felt like things weren't the way they should be. So they quickly lost sight of who God is. They lost sight of this covenant, this relationship that they had with God. And they concluded that God wasn't doing his part. And here's the thing. When we begin to feel like God isn't doing his part, we are so quick to turn and rebel against him. Malachi 2, 17 says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. How have we wearied him, you ask? By saying all who do evil are good in the eyes of the Lord and he is pleased with them or where is the God of justice? Does that not just sound like they're questioning, where are you, God? But God says, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord Almighty. But who can endure the day of his coming? You say, look, you're wanting me to show up and do justice, but you don't know what you're asking. Be careful what you ask for. Who can stand when he appears? For he will be like a refiner's fire or a launderer's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purify or purifier of silver. He will purify the Levites and refine them like gold and silver. They looked around them and they saw these who were more wicked prospering. They're like, God, where is your justice? What are you doing? They saw them prospering. It looked and felt like God was rewarding the wrong ones. But see, they had lost sight of promises like Psalm 34, 18 that says, the Lord is close to those who are brokenhearted and saves those who are crushed in spirit. The issue wasn't that God wasn't close to the brokenhearted. The issue was that they arrogantly pursued their own gain and blamed God when they didn't get it. Micah 3, 6 through 9. I, the Lord, do not change. So you, the descendants of Jacob, are not destroyed. Ever since the time of your ancestors, you have turned from my decrees and have not kept them. Return to me and I will return to you, says the Lord Almighty. But you ask, how are we to return? Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are we robbing you? In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse. Your whole nation because you are robbing me. Their consciences were so seared, they didn't even realize that they were bringing God second best. It looked and felt like they were the ones being robbed, but they lost sight of the fact that the only reasons that they had not been destroyed is because God does not change. They lost sight of the fact that God is faithful even when we are unfaithful. The last one here is in Malachi 3, 13 through 15. You have spoken arrogantly against me, says the Lord. Yet you asked, 
What have we said against you? You have said it is futile to serve God. What do we gain by carrying out his requirements and going about like mourners before the Lord Almighty? But now we call the arrogant blessed. Certainly evildoers prosper. And even when they put God to the test, they get away with it. The challenge here is really, this is the culmination of all their complaints. They've come to this place where they're saying it isn't worth it to serve God. And we quickly come to this conclusion that if it doesn't work, it isn't worth it. And again, they were leaning into their own understanding of what they saw and how things felt. If it doesn't seem like it's working, it must not be worth it. If God isn't going to do what we want him to do, then we won't serve him. And after Malachi prophesies, there's this 400 years of silence. The silence begins. And these last words of Malachi that we find in verse one of chapter three begin to set up what's coming after the 400 years of silence, but they couldn't see it. What they understood, what they felt didn't make sense. And God said, I will send my messenger who will prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come. Over in verse or chapter four, verse five, see, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes, he will turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the hearts of the children to their parents or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. When we look at this, this is Malachi saying, this is God declaring, look, don't just look around you at what is, but begin to look forward in faith at what will be. We so often are people who live by what we see and what we feel, not by what God has promised. And if you look at this, this is huge. If you go to John chapter one, we see where this really happens. This is not the traditional kind of um, passage for Christmas, but it speaks to exactly what we're looking at today. It speaks to what we're celebrating today. It says in John 1, 1, that in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it we read this, it's talking about the birth of Christ, that the word became flesh, that this word that had been silent for 400 years, when Jesus was born, the word of God exploded onto the scene, but it wasn't just with uh, some um, other prophet speaking it. It was with God becoming flesh and dwelling with us. And when this word burst onto the scene, this same word, this same God, this same being who had created all of what we see originally, that gave life to all things. Once again, this word that became flesh was there to recreate, to give life, to restore, to heal he comes onto the scene. Micah said, I'll send my messenger 
who will prepare the way before you. John 1, 6 says there was a man sent from God whose name was John, John the Baptist. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He only came as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He's saying John the Baptist came and he began to preach, telling people the kingdom of heaven was near. He's saying, turn, turn your hearts back to God. We know that the Bible elsewhere contributes to John the Baptist, this title of Elijah that is mentioned in Micah. He says, I'll send Elijah before the coming of that day. And John the Baptist comes and begins to prepare the way for the Lord to come. And John the Baptist, look, he says, I'm not the one. I'm just preparing the way for the one who was to come. Micah 3.1 says, then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. Luke 2.22, Jesus is brought in when it was time for his purification rites according to the Jewish law to be fulfilled. And Luke 2.22 tells us that it was approximately about 40 days that Jesus was brought into the temple. And there were even people there that when Jesus was brought into that temple, they began to celebrate because they realized that this child, when he was brought into the temple, was the fulfillment of Micah 3.1, that the Lord has appeared in his temple. Micah 3.1 says, the messenger of the covenant who you desire will come. John 1 says that he came, verse 11, to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God, this messenger of the covenant, the covenant, the relationship that would no longer be based off of us keeping the law, but would be based off of the fact that Jesus kept the law so that now by faith to all those who would receive him, this child who grew to live a perfect life, this child who would go to a cross that he didn't deserve, this child who would take our sin upon himself, this child who would ultimately take God's wrath upon himself, this child to all who would receive him, who would be dead and put into a tomb, but three days later would rise again. This child for all who believe would give the right for us to become sons and daughters of God, not based off of our ability or our performance, but based off of what Jesus has accomplished. From 400 years of silence, God's word became flesh in Christ and exploded onto the scene. I would ask you this, was God angry during those 400 years? Was it that God was no longer there? Did he go on a vacation to some other side of the universe, right? Was he not there anymore? Did God no longer care? Was he hiding? Was he about to ambush them? See, see, we need to understand that God is not emotionally unstable. We need to understand that he is not emotionally driven and unpredictable. God wasn't off pouting. He wasn't off hiding. God was preparing. God was preparing. In those 400 years, God was preparing. And this is what we need to remember. Listen to me. When we face times of deafening 
silence. And the night seemed long, and we maybe even wonder where God is. If God is, and if God is, why isn't he listening? Then we remember that God is always working. He is always preparing and positioning us for his purposes, for his glory, and for our ultimate good. But listen, this requires faith, not understanding. 2 Corinthians 5, 7 tells us that we'll live by faith, not by sight. This is in a context of that, that one day what is temporary will be swallowed up by what's eternal, what is mortal, what is prone to fear, what's prone to weakness, sin, sickness, disease, and death will be swallowed up in life one final time. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding but in all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. So we will never offer God our best. And this is what happened to the Israelites. We'll never offer God our best unless we believe the best is yet to come. We'll never offer God our best until even when our understanding doesn't seem to line up. We know that the best is yet to come. We see it through the lens of faith. And just like the Israelites, you need to understand this, that God has given us victory over our enemies through Jesus. Satan, death, hell, the grave, they've all been put under the feet of Christ. He's trampled on them. And by faith, we tread on those enemies that once dominated our lives. Satan may have bruised Jesus' heel, but he has crushed his head. Now we can say, where, O oh death, is your sting? Because Jesus has plundered the power of hell. And now the grave has no claim on the lives of believers. Those Israelites thought the temple was too small and insignificant, so they quit being faithful in worship. But what they didn't realize is that God would build a temple that wasn't made with human hands. He wouldn't inhabit brick and mortar. He wouldn't even dwell with, with his people. He would dwell in his people. This is why Jesus could tell those closest to him, it is good for you that I go away. And I used to ask like, how is that good that Jesus would go away? And I realized that Jesus in me is so much better than Jesus beside me. The Israelites lost sight of who God is, but we can look at Jesus and see exactly who God is. When we see God's love in Christ, it compels us not to rebellion, but to worship. Those Israelites were jealous because the wicked prospered but we realize this, that we are wicked, but have been saved by Jesus. We know we don't even belong to this world anymore. We know that what we've received in Christ is greater than what the world can offer. The Israelites were giving God their second best, but we offer God our lives as living sacrifices because we have seen and experienced the fullness of God's mercy. The Israelites felt like it wasn't worth it to serve God, but we know 
that those who follow Jesus will never get to the end of their lives and regret, regret it. I wanna tell you this, the one thing that Christmas should reveal to us is that God will finish what he started. Even in the silence, even in times when you begin to wonder, is he there and is he listening? This is the thing that we can be sure of. The best is yet to come. And even after 400 years of silence, God proved it by sending his son, by giving us his best. Christmas should be a very clear statement to us that the best is always yet to come with God. This is what we can be certain of in the midst of uncertainty. We can know this, that peace and confidence grounded in understanding, it cannot last. Understanding and uncertainty cannot coexist. Yet uncertainty, we face it every day. It is a constant in our life. Faith assumes the presence of uncertainty, so it is not hindered by it. So when we, even in times of this deafening silence, when we begin to live by faith and not understanding, we can find peace. Understanding, listen, understanding is rooted in having all the information Faith is rooted in trust because I know the one who promised is faithful. Understanding grows weak when I don't know success is certain, but faith knows success is certain even when I grow weak because it's when I'm weak that I find God's strength. Understanding has to know every step of the way. Faith only needs to know the one who has promised to be with us on the way. Understanding wavers in the uncertainty because the goal is threatened and achieving it becomes uncertain. But faith holds on and presses on in uncertainty because certainty in the process was never the end goal or the promise. Understanding becomes paralyzed in uncertainty because its mantra is what if. Faith never quits and never surrenders because its mantra is even if. Even if it doesn't matter because I know who my God is. See, we as believers, we don't fight our battles as the world does. It's Christmas. You don't fight your battles as the world does. We don't fight with what we humanly understand, but we fight with the weapons of faith. We fight with unyielding prayer because we know our God hears. We fight with God's word because we know it is the sword of the spirit that carries all authority to rebuke the enemy, to set captives free, to save sinners and to bring the dead to life. We fight with our worship because we know the one we worship cannot fail. We fight with confidence because we know the one who goes before us. We fight with perseverance because we know that one day all that is wrong, all that is wrong will be made right. We fight with strength because we know that it is the Lord who fights our battles. We fight with assurance because we know that we don't fight for victory. We fight from victory. We fight tenaciously because we know that come hell or high water, we will still be standing when the dust has cleared and the waters have subsided. And tonight, listen, as we celebrate Christmas, 
I want to invite you that if you believe these things, to stand and to declare them, to stand and worship the King of Kings that gives us this certainty, to stand and worship the Lord of Lords who has overcome, and to stand and worship the one who was and is and is to come. Because in Him, the best is always in front of us. It is never behind us. If you believe that tonight, I want to encourage you. You stand and you begin to worship the King of Kings.